like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I will be completing my look at Dick's 1964 novel, The Simulacrum. I've been looking at this novel for the past four episodes, and we've come to the end. We've come to the final chapters of this book, at which time I'll be able to to kind of uh, close up my thoughts, give my overall review and um, perspective on the novel, and look at some of the themes that that I think are at the heart of, of this novel. So in the last episode, we saw how, how uh, Al Miller and Ian Duncan, these two f- uh, friends from long ago, one's a jalopy salesman, the other basically a loser living at uh, a massive collective apartment complex called the Abraham Lincoln Apartments, and uh, kind of in his last straws, uh, last moments, thinking about emigrating from Earth altogether, get together to recreate their classical jug band. They have finally achieved enough uh, skill that they get noticed by White House talent scouts, even though they have um, they essentially cheated by using a, a, a psychic simulacrum to influence the results. But they get to the White House anyways, and they see Nicole, and they perform for her their classical jug routine. And during this, the papula, this device they 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 have with them, uh, bites Nicole. For this, they are punished by being mind wiped and then forced to eventually emigrate from Earth along with Looney Luke, the man who runs the major jalopy uh, industry. The jalopies are one way rockets that take people to the moon from Earth. And so that puts an end to their story. They don't show up in the final parts of the novel, but I think they're thematically very important. Um, and I'll come back to them at the, in, in my final comments on the book. We've also seen how the government has changed the contract for the production of the Deralta. One of the major secrets of the government that's all known only to a minority of the people is that the head of g- g- the government, the Deralta, the man who every four years is chosen by the people to marry Nicole, the first lady. We learn that we learn that, that contract to make the Deralta has been switched from a big conglomerate who the government sort of fears, to a small firm which is well known for its craftsmanship but also uh, can be more easily controlled by the government. So the contract is moved to Fra Zimmer Associates. You also meet two brothers, one each of each of whom works for these two companies. Uh, Vince Strikerock works for the big, the big cartel and Chick Strikerock works for the small um, firm. Now, although Chick just quit his, quit his job thinking he's going to go to Mars, when he, uh, he comes back to work after finding out that, um, that this big contract has come to the, to the company. He eventually is able to get his brother a job there, um, his brother Vince, but Vince is actually serving as a spy for the big cartel. So this lets us get a kind of a window into the politics of, of the world described in the simulacrum. Basically, we have two sets of people, the 
gays who know the Gemenis, which is that the Deralta is a simulacrum, and then the bays, the people who are just who don't know that. And most of the bays, or at least the male bays, are heavily in love with Nicole who they have a kind of Oedipus relation, Oedipus complex relationship with, because for many people, Nicole is both a mother and a lover, because she's very beautiful, she's young. In fact, they keep her young by replacing her with actresses when the, when Nicole gets too old. Um, and we learn that actually at the end of chapter 12. No, at the end of chapter, yeah, the end of chapter 12, we actually get the confession from Nicole that she is an actress. Nicole, um, who we meet as a character, has a lot on her plate. She's involved in this scheme by the government to bring from the past Hermann Goering in order to negotiate with him an alternative history for the Third Reich, basically one that would get the Third Reich out of the hands of Adolf Hitler before Germany would be destroyed. She's got to worry about that. She's got to worry about relationships with Israel. She's got to worry about um, possibly this company that's had this contract for the Duralta taken away from them, it's called CARP, that this company will try to release the information to the broader public. And she's also lost her favorite performer, Richard Congrosian, a psychic, a telekinetic piano player, you know, who's kind of went nuts and he's sort of wandering around and people don't know where, to, where he is. They eventually find him at a jalopy jungle preparing to emigrate to Mars and then they bring him back to the White House. Another, pe another group of people looking for Richard Congrosian are Nat Flieger, who works for a recording company, along with his co-worker Jim Plank and a young woman named Molly, who's interested in seeing Congrosian because she's, she likes his music. They go through this weird ghetto slumish area where Richard Congrosian, a famous musician, has chosen to live. They have various adventures on their way to Congrosian's house, including meeting the head of the movement called the Sons of Job, which is the major destination for many disaffected young males who feel emasculated by the matriarchy of, of Nicole Thibodeau. They're, they're essentially their leader. The other place a lot of disaffected men go is to, to, to Mars. It's a, it's a very interesting subplot that I think has a lot of ramifications for our current um, politics, and especially when we look at movements like the alt-right and even you know, kind of YouTube phenomena like Jordan Peterson, which seem to attract a lot of disaffected males who maybe aren't, you know, aren't getting married, living with their parents, can't get a good job, that kind of population of men who, who feel, and then they take, take out their frustrations on, on feminism or yeah, social justice warriors or, or whatever, or, you know, The Last Jedi, whatever it might be that they take their pressure, their frustrations out on, they kind of orient themselves to to these new movements, uh, these new social movements that seem to give some new meaning to their life. Uh, unfortunately, many of them are politically quite rightist uh, or re at least reactionary. Uh, so we meet that character as they go on this adventure. They, they eventually run into a group of people called Chubbers, who everyone assumes are kind of a small population of nuclear mutants. In fact, they are genetic, uh, they're throwbacks, they're relics. They are actually survivalists of the Neanderthal race who have been hiding out, biding their time for, for thousands of, of years. Another character in the backdrop of all this is Dr. Egon Superb, who is the last working psychiatrist because psychiatry has been declared illegal by the government in the context of, of easy access to chemical pharmaceuticals that can treat mental illness. Psychotherapy has been deemed a, a, essentially a 
a quack um, a quack um, practice and so they've been forbidden except one has been allowed uh, to continue working uh, because he's been asked to by a man working within the, the secret police named um, Pembroke and he's actually all, his own his entire motives aren't really known but he seems to be um, doing something within the government that's involving Richard Grosian so it's not clear where his loyalties lie at this point of the novel so as you see in my brief description of what's happened up until the end of this novel there's a lot of moving pieces that Dick is keeping on the table and that makes it seem like a very fractured novel even though there's some interesting themes that I think run, run out through the, the whole thing, it sometimes doesn't feel like it quite comes together. In fact, the novel in many ways is incomplete. He, it kind of ends, it, it's kind of emotionally satisfying and thematically satisfying at times, but the plot doesn't end. You know, in fact, we kind of pick up the story in the middle and we end it you know, in the middle. It's kind of almost like it'd be the middle chapters of a much longer, longer tale. And that, that's just something you kind of get used to when you read um, the works of, of Philip K. Dick. So I don't know, that, that summary I'm, not, I'm sure is not fully adequate. So if you haven't read The Simulacrum or haven't been following my series, maybe you want to go back to my f first episode where I, where I pick up on the first chapter of The Simulacrum and, and go through my thoughts on it. Um, but if you do want to just jump in at this point, I'll be looking at the final three chapters of the novel, chapters 13, 14, and 15, before giving some of my final thoughts about, about the novel. So chapter 13 is divided up into uh, four scenes. The first scene we, we pick up with Richard Kingrosian, this telekinetic musician, pianist, who is at the White House. The secret police, uh, lead, had the, the head of the secret police there, Wilder Pembroke, is trying to get him help for his psychic breakdown because he no longer can see a psychotherapist. Dr. Egon Superb. So you're trying to get him chemical help from, from A.G. Kemi. And, you know, it's also, I mean, he needs pharmaceuticals to treat his, his bizarre mental illnesses. But he also has a belief that he has got a phobic body odor. This actually comes to him through advertisements he's heard. So when he hears the ad like, you know, are you smelly? Maybe you'll want this product that will cure your, your, your bad body odor. He starts to then believe that this is real about him, and he thinks he can only infect others with this body odor. He also believes he's invisible because of similar advertisements that, that proclaim his invisibility. So he kind of takes advertisements at face value, and, and they kind of works them into his own delusions about himself. And so Pembroke is promising him help from, from A.G., um, Chemi, Chemi, but he thinks, Congrosian thinks that the plot is essentially to kill him. And so he f is able to fight back against Pembroke using Teak. Oh, actually, it's, it's a representative of A.G. Chemi who comes, Judd, who, and then it's Congrosian who strikes out against Judd trying to um, free himself from this undue chemical uh, influence. You know, and we are actually for the first time seek Grosian's full ability and they're actually quite impressive up to this point we've seen him use his teak you know to pick up the phone or to dial numbers or something like that we don't really and we know he can play the piano quite well with it but we haven't really seen the full effect of his abilities and he actually has quite a powerful teak when pushed against the wall all right we get a little description of what Grosian is able to do quote the psych chemist rose from the floor dangling in air still clutching his official ag chemi briefcase he gapped at Grosian and pembroke eyes protruding he tried to speak and then Grosian whisked him at the closed door of the room the door wooden and hollow core splintered as judge swept against it and through it he disappeared from Grosian's sight then only pembroke and np men remained in the room with him and so pembroke is you know just witnessed the full power of 
of Kingrosian. And, and Pembroke warns him that this ability is pretty dangerous, that perhaps he'll, be, he'll harm Nicole next time he sees him. If he continues on his kind of psych, psychological breakdown, he might actually harm Nicole. This is horrifying to Congrosian, who's deeply in love with Nicole and has this strange... He's, he's one of the great examples of a character who has this strange Oedipus complex with Nicole, seeing her both as a mother and a, and a lover. And he actually vows to protect Nicole. Yeah, and he goes farther. He actually denies that he could actually hurt Nicole because he can't be political. And he said hurting Nicole would be a political act and he's incapable of of being political. And then Pembroke says, well, you're completely wrong here. You you have been political and you can be political. He says politics, if I may remind you, is the art of getting other people to do what you want them by force if necessary. Your application of psychokinesis just now was rather unusual in its directness, but nevertheless was a political act. Um, so there's a there's a little bit of a debate here about the nature of a political act and Pembroke being a member of the secret police has a much broader vision of what is political and who is political and Kingrosian is more I guess compartmentalizing political actors. Um, now Goltz arrived. Now Goltz has kind of been he's the head of this Sons of Job's movement, this neo-fascist movement, but he kind of pops in and out of the narrative because he's got access to the von Lessing principle, which is basically how this novel deals with time travel. So he's able to protect himself from threats by going back in time and altering the timeline. And he's able to warn people and, and give messages to people. And he does that here. He comes, he appears and he gives Congrosian a note in this Congrosian, this note warns Congrosian that Pembroke is actually out to get him. The note just says, Pembroke leads you to your death. And so now uh, King Grosjean is has this warning. And I think this might be the event that that disrupts Pembroke's plan. Because Pembroke also has access to the von Lessing principle as a government actor. Um, and he's the one earlier in the novel who went to Dr. Egon Superb and told him to take all patients that you have. And it will allow you to continue to be a psychiatrist, even though it's illegal. But you got to kick all your patients because we want a patient to be to be kept insane, right? We don't want him cured. And that's why we're taking him to a psychotherapist. It's a little stab at psychotherapy uh, early in the novel. But I, I got the, I'm not quite sure, but I think this note by Goltz is what kind of changes Pembroke's plan. And now Kingrosian is able to be a real threat. I, I think at this point, Pembroke thought that he could be the one, Richard Kingrosian could be the one who could be used to hurt Nicole or dethrone Nicole or, or, or kill her. If he was brought with her, you know, in a state of mental decay and, and, and a mental breakdown. So anyways, that's what happens in the first scene of chapter 13. Then we go to scene two and we pick up with Nat Flieger, Jim Plank and, and Molly, who are now at Kingrosian's house. And they're with Mrs. Kingrosian. And they've just learned not only are there these Neanderthals living around there, but that Kingrosian and his family have contacts with these Neanderthals. And there's actually picture evidence of this where Kingrosian like playing with Neanderthal children. Now, something really interesting happens at this point, and Nat, who's here to record Congrosion, he's got actually his biotech recorder with him, and he, you know, he brought it to record Congrosion. Congrosion's not there, so he's got his ears open for the chance to record some music, and he actually hears Neanderthal children singing out there playing, and he wants to record them, and Mrs. Congrosion is very insistent that he not record them, and there seems to be an ar- interesting argument here about like the authentic folk music and its value and how it can be used and should it be used? Should we record these traditions? You know, maybe they're traditions that are dying out. Maybe they're traditions that you know are at risk of 
of not being heard. Maybe there are things that people would enjoy, but if you're without people's consent, essentially recording their deepest traditions, whether it's music or stories or whatever, you know, maybe you're violating them. I think, you know, we can think about this in terms of maybe what anthropologists sometimes do, where they go and, and see cultures and record them, especially old. I, I think anthropologists now are probably more uh, concerned about the ethics of it all. But, you know, 100 years ago, anthropologists would just go into communities, sometimes disrupt them, some, you know, record them, create stories about them. And those people are never in a position to really talk back or to revise those images or you know, everything's kind of going through their, their, you know, the mind of these specialists. And anyways, Mrs. Congrosian really hates the idea of, of talking, uh, of them recording the, the voices of these Neanderthal children. And she says, instead of recording the children, you can record the adults, like there'll be a festival tonight or something, and then you can record them, but don't record the, the children. And then they talk about a, a, de, a, a debate about the fate of the Neanderthals, which is still a, a debate that's, I think, going on within physical anthropology and, and the origins of humanity. And that is, you know, what happened to the Neanderthal? And I guess the two main theories are, are they just simply intermarried with Homo sapiens and therefore never really died out They're They're still with us. And and the idea that they were just like displaced or driven to extinction by Homo sapiens or perhaps even just outright murdered by them, but more likely probably just supplanted and and eventually um, driven to extinction. You know, I don't know. I, I've heard somewhere, I, I don't have a source for this, but I once heard that one of the reasons, one of the justifications the Nazis gave for their racial superiority over other races was was an idea that they had Neanderthal blood in them or that they, you know, they're closer. They have that and other, other groups on Earth don't. I, I don't remember where I heard that. If anyone knows or heard something similar to that, please back me up. But I'm not going to, you know, you know, it's just a, a, an image I have in my head of, of coming across that at one point. Maybe it was in a Lovecraft letter, so it doesn't really, well, it wouldn't have been a Lovecraft letter, but um, maybe it was just somewhere in a primary source or something that, that may not be fully... Um, representative of of what most people thought and this this one uh neanderthal child platus um who it seems that congrosian and mrs congrosian are, are essentially raising him they're trying to protect him one reason they're living kind of in this region is they want to protect him from from the government who would send him off to special schools where other radiation survivors are sent and Beth Congrosian says, we thought he'd, he would be happier here. Most of them, the chuppers, as they speak of themselves, are here. They come from every part of the world during the last two decades. End quote. So what we have here is actually the Neanderthals who have been kind of scattered around the world. You know, various remnants have all come to this place, which is like on the west coast of the United States, to, you know, to congregate. And why is it's not clear yet. Then the next scene we have is Dr. Egan superb, and he gets told that that uh, Wilder Pembroke has come to to talk to him. So from the previous scene where we last met Pembroke, he's since come to Dr. Egan superb's office. Now Pembroke's come basically out of terror for Congrosion and what he can do, and he's asking he's asking help from Egan superb in, in a couple of ways. One thing he really wants us to understand Congrosian and to say what he knows about him. It's kind of ironic because Pembroke doesn't seem to respect the psychotherapists. And even here he gets a stab out at the psych, professional psychotherapy, kind of calling it a, a ridiculous 
um, old-fashioned quack quackery. But he still has this this worry. And he's like, what's the key to the mind of, of Kingrosian? And Egon Superb is able to more or less describe what this is, going into details about how he has this this view of, or Nicole, he sees Nicole as his mother and the great primordial mother, almost a Jungian archetype for, for a mother. And at this, Pembroke declares uh, the knowledge that, that only certain people know, and that is that Nicole is not Nicole. Nicole is an actress named Kate Rupert. And, you know, the real Nicole died many years ago, and, and they just replaced her with an actress, the same way they replaced the Deralta, her husband, with a robot every, every four years. So now that he knows the, the ultimate truth about the government, Pembroke then goes into more of his plan. And his plan at this point is to dethrone the, 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 the system by releasing this knowledge to everyone. So there will be no more divisions between the people who know this knowledge, the gays, and everyone else who, who doesn't know it. He says, um, you see, doctor, I intend to make public that particular gimenez to the bays and simultaneously Karp und Schnoldenhoferk will reveal the other. And so that's that's we kind of learn more about uh, Pembroke's ultimate plan. Like Goltz, he seems to have this plan of, of shattering and breaking up the system. And, and Goltz had said something earlier to I think it was Nat Flieger that, you know, my real goal here is not to bring back fascism or, 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 or have a war with the Jews or anything like that. My real goal here is to break down the Deralta system. And that seems to also be Pembroke's goal in all this. And the releasing of this news is all meant to disrupt, be a, a fundamental disruption to the system. And that's how Pembroke justifies this at, in the chapter. He says, don't worry about the psychological effects on the nation. Of the masses of bays, I think they'll be able to withstand it. Once the initial shock has worn off, there'll be a reaction, of course. I expect it to demolish the system of government. Wouldn't you agree? By that, I mean there'll be no further Deltas, no more so-called Nicole, and no more division into gay and bay. Because we'll all be gays now, correct? And Suburb comes to realize that, that that is true. And he thinks that that is a way kind of society can move forward. I, I think, you know, there's, there's a theme throughout a lot of Philip Dick's novels between kind of stagnation and inertia and, and progress. And in a lot of his earlier works, the frontier becomes a way of kind of projecting progress to it. But as I talked about in my reviews of Martian Time Slip, it's not really clear anymore that that is how progress can come. And it seems to have to come from somewhere else. Um, so we really have three choices here, right? One is disrupt the system to hope there can be some progress and we can break up people's, the psychological bondage people have to Nicole and the Deralta system and all that. We can kind of keep things going. And as basically Nicole's agenda here is trying to juggle all these moving pieces and keep the system moving on. And then, you know, I, I guess, I don't know if there's a character here who's really representing the inertial strategy but you know maybe maybe some of these these males like uh ian duncan or congrosion kind of getting progressively mentally ill over the course of the novel or my the mind you know ian duncan being mind wiped i'm not sure but these are kind of the options dick often gives us and here it seems pembroke is almost in a little bit of a way a good guy in that he does see that the system has to be jolted in order for people to make any any progress and then in the final scene of chapter 13, we, we pick up with Maury and Chick at uh, Frau Zimmer Associates. And, and basically Chick, who's come back to work now that 
Mori has this new contract to make the Deralta. Now, obviously, with the other plot lines going on, this isn't ever going to come to pass. And it's kind of Chick's a poor guy. He, you know, he, he finds out he's, he's going to lose his job because there's no business. He quits the job to move to Mars. He ends up not being able to go to Mars. So he goes back to work just in time to get the job because there's this big contract. And then massive political events unfold that that means he can't keep his job. But um, that's 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 life. Um, so anyways, there's a little bit of talk here about Vince and, you know, Vince's motivations for working for Frauzimmer Associates. Is he really a spy for CARP? Um, and eventually when Mari finds that out, he blames Chick for not emigrating. And then they get the news. So Maury and Chick get the news that's been released. Pembroke released the news earlier about uh, the reality about Nicole. And I think I forget which news was released first, but eventually they do release both pieces of, of news about Nicole is an actress and the Deralta is a robot. And now, of course, their business is imploding around them. Maury blames Chick for inviting Vince to come work for them, seeing that saying that he's the one who who undermined their business, ruined their business. And eventually they realized because they are part of this conspiracy now, they were like the last ones in on it. And now that they are probably going to be arrested by the mil by the secret police, the secret police are going to come and arrest them and they're going to end up in jail or worse. And it's all Chick's fault for for um, bringing Vince into work. Now, it's not really his fault, obviously, but um, it's easy to blame him because he was he's nearby. And that's the end of, of Chapter 13. Chapter 14. Um, I think this is essentially one scene. This is the only chapter that functions this way. All the other chapters of the book are multiple scenes. This one is just a single scene dealing with Nicole in the government as kind of the, the house is falling around her. And one of the first things she does is orders the death of Herman Gehring, who they've brought in to the president. She just wants to clean up any loose ends that might cause her trouble down the line. So she just orders the death of, of Gehring. Nothing much comes of that subplot of bringing Garing from the past um, in order to kind of make a deal with him and then send him back. Garing dies and there's no change in the timeline and then Dick can't help but throw in a joke here about how, you know, Garing's death is so insignificant to world history. He's so insignificant by the time he, you know, as part of the Third Reich that his death doesn't really have any effect on, on the timeline. Pembroke, uh, who is kind of playing both sides at this point, you know, does tell Nicole that he'll deal with the plotters. He, he's blaming Carp. He's blaming Frauzim Associates for releasing this knowledge. In fact, of course, it was him who had an integral part in releasing this knowledge. But Nicole, at least aware enough that Pembroke is not fully trustworthy, fires him. So she's trying to clean up um, that loose end as well. Okay, so then it's Nicole and Kingrosian are together. And Kingrosian talks to Nicole about his need for a cure and all that. And he also tells Nicole that Pembroke is a conspirator and a bad guy and you're right to fire him or whatever. And it's at this point that Congrosian hears the news that Nicole's an actress. And this really, you know, has a profound effect on him, of course, because he's essentially in, in love with Nicole, both as a mother and, and as a lover or as a potential lover, I guess. And, you know, now, you know, things really get a bit confused politically. It's not clear who has any governmental power. Nicole's trying to decide what to do. She thinks maybe she needs to go before the public to give a kind of a, a sense of continuity and security, but she really doesn't have any clear allies in the government. And she eventually goes to approach the Central Committee to find out 
you know, their advice and to get guidance and support from the Central Committee. Goltz is there. Now, Goltz, it turns out, has been part of the Central Committee of the government all along while also running this anti-Nicole movement of the Sons of Job from the outside. The committee recommend that Nicole kill <clears throat> kills Pembroke. <clears throat> they also tell Nicole that she should nationalize CARP to try to put a, you know, really get really brutal right on her enemies as essentially as their advice um to her so replace essentially they're saying replace the motherly image you've been projecting into the world the, the nice nice nicole and be brutal nicole and as i talked about in previous episodes i i think what we learn here is it's significant that nicole is an actress because you know how much of political power and the political game and, and ex exercising it is acting I guess is the is the question that we're forced to question, ask here, and that that Nicole can be brutal or motherly or sexy depending on the context and depending on the situation. You know, as a product, of course, of her being an actress, but in her case, she's actually you know engaging in real political acts, right? If if she's acting brutal, she's doing brutal things. It's 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 not a reflection of her true nature, and you know how much how often does political power work that way? Where someone who, you know, is kindly and nice, you know, is is engaging in in brutal acts, uh, be, not you know, because that's that's what the position requires. Now Pembroke comes to arrest uh, the council actually, so he's he's decided he's going to see after he's been fired by Nicole, he decides he's going to seize control. He comes in to arrest the council. He actually kills Gold. So. Goltz's efforts to evade death by using time travel finally come to an end. And he, he arrests the council and he wants Nicole to confess and then abdicate power to the police and then have a kind of a series of elections. And in fact, it seems Pembroke's plan isn't to establish a military dictatorship or a police state. He wants to, you know, get Nicole to abdicate, you know, then there'll be a kind of a provisional government and then elections um, in, in the future. Now, how this all works out is never really revealed in the novel because the novel ends before we see what actually happens. All we really know is fighting breaks out um, and the government's imploding. Now, who, com who comes in and saves the day is none other than Congrosian. Um, now, this seems actually to work against Pembroke's plan because Pembroke wanted to keep Congrosian insane. Uh, maybe it was to prevent this very thing from happening. I'm not sure, but... Congrosian actually is able to save um, Nicole. There's a really bizarre scene where Congrosian is moving his own internal organs and he's using his teak powers on himself and others. And eventually he transports Nicole entirely using his telekinetic powers to to the Congrosian home. And and that's how the scene ends. But it's really wild. It's bizarre. It's a lot of fun. And you actually have the scene where where Congrosian is is kind of losing so much control over his telekinetic powers that he, he's even moving his own body parts around and things. Mrs. Congrosian then finally gets to meet the quote-unquote Nicole that was. Um, the news, from Mrs. Congrosian's point of view, we, we see all the news that's reflecting the situation, uh, that, you know, what's been going on, fighting's breaking out, all, all these political turmoils, and then the truth that the Deralt is a, a robot and Nicole's an actress is all out there too. Nicole wonders what she's going to do with her life at this point. Here's what she thinks, or here's what she says. It's to Mrs. Congrosian. Thanks. She felt a little better. Maybe I'll never go back, she thought. After all, where is her to go back to? Janet is dead. Bertold Goltz is dead. 
even Rex Marshall Gearing is dead, and of course, Wilder Pembroke, he's dead by now too. And the entire ruling council, all the half-concealed figures who stood behind her, assuming of course that the MP men had carried out their orders, which they no doubt had. And she thought, I cannot rule any longer. The news machines have seen that in their blind, efficient, mechanical way. They and the carps, now, she decided, it's the carps' turn. They can hold power for a while until they are in turn preempted, as it were. She thought, I can't even get to Mars, at least not by Jalopy. I saw that to myself. And there are other ways, big legal commercial ships and government ships as well, very fast ships which belong to the military. Perhaps I could commandeer one. I could work through Rudy, even though he is or is on his deathbed. Legally, the army has sworn an oath to him. They're supposed to do what he or it tells them. Um, so Nicole doesn't really know what to do, but obviously she's not going to be back in a, in a position of power. Then, on ch then we get to the final chapter of the book, chapter 15. Um, and we got three scenes here. Uh, the first is Chick and Maury, and they were waiting for the military or the secret police to come in and arrest them. And, and they, they, they know they're going to fall. Um, they get the news through various like these news delivery machines that that you know that the army's attacking carp that there's fighting breaking up between the car carp cartel and and the military and they think a little bit about the benefits of being small and and how getting involved in these this big contract may have been a mistake and they just they just flee out and hope for the best so so that's the last we hear of maury and and chick for now oh no we do see we see chick a little bit later so they they flee hoping to get away from the fighting and 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 thankful that they're small enough that that maybe they won't be noticed the next scene we have is back at the congrosian's house and we see nat flieger finally getting his recording he's been waiting for for the entire novel and that is recording the chubbers and what we learn in this section is that the Chubbers are, in fact, biding their own time to once again take over. And one reason they congregated is because they, they somehow saw or predicted or know, knew that society was going to be disrupted and that maybe the Neanderthals could, could reemerge, that, that their time would come again. Nat realizes this when he sees them kind of watching the television that's declaring all this news. And here's what Dick writes. So this is it, Nat realized with a thrill of fear. The emptiness, the dull listlessness, that had gone. The chuppers were alert now as they viewed the flickering TV image and listened to the excited TV announcer. What does this mean to them? Nat wondered as he studied their emotion-laden, eager faces. It means he decided that they have a chance. This might be their opportunity. We're destroying each other before their eyes, and it might provide room for them, a space to squeeze in. Room. Nat cooped up here in their dreary, tiny enclave, but out in the world itself everywhere. End quote. So not to take over, but to to actually be a people again, to no longer be um, uh, forgotten or, or out of time. Oh, oh so then we have a scene shift. So actually, we, we there's actually four scenes in this chapter um, after the recording the Chubbers and, and having this realization that the Chubbers suddenly are interested in the world in a way they weren't before because they see a, a moment to to take back what was once theirs, a legitimate place on this earth, right? And that could be a metaphor for so many things, so many people who have been conquered, colonized, had their land stolen or whatever. But we return back with, with, with Chick, Maury, and now they're with Vince, and they, they decide to hide out at the Abraham Lincoln Apartments, which is Chick and Vince's old house. They, they eventually get 
because the fighting breaks out, the Abraham Lincoln Apartments people let Maury come in as a guest, basically out of the kindness of, of their heart. They think about who's going to win, and they really don't know how events on Earth are going to turn out. And then Chick and Julie, um, of course, Julie is Vince's ex-wife. Chick and Julie decide to go off together to Mars, and Julie actually had her tickets. And I think she welcomes, I think, Maury to come with them. And then he, he decides not to. So it's just going to be the two of them are going to go off to Mars together to begin, begin a life. And this, we, this relationship, it, it has a very ambiguous future. But by setting out together, there, there's hope that this relationship can be something stable. Um, and, and so we can kind of, Dick does this a lot, of course. So he just kind of gives us a little bit of hope at the end. Not, not any clear answer of what's going to happen. Um, so actually, Maury stays to, to kind of see over his business to see if his business survives all this. Maybe there'll be, a, you know, a future for that. Um, it, and the fact that he decides to stay behind and Chick decides to go ahead. And when asked what he's going to do on Mars, he says, farm, claim a piece of good land and, get in, and start irrigating it. I have relatives there. They'll help us get started. And then they go off. They go off to Mars. Um, now, something Chick has been debating doing on his own to get away from life, to get away from women, to get away from... Nicole and all these other pressures he's been having um, get away from his job. Now he's he's going to Mars as, as essentially a family man. So it's a big change in, in Chick and he, uh, I think. And and there's no clear decision here about the, f the frontier. And, you know, like in Martian Time Slip, we saw like the reality of the frontier is kind of bleak and dreary. But we saw the hope, hopefulness of so many people about what the frontier could be. Especially people who come there, um, you know, various characters who observed it. The official policy was still optimistic. The government policy in that novel was still optimistic as well. But the reality seemed bleak. Here, we never see the frontier, so we don't know what it's like on Mars. But we, we see different people seeing Mars as a potential way to renew their lives. Um, and we get a bit of that here with, with Chick finally going there. But going there, you know, as a new person, as part of a couple, not as just a, a man running away from from his life um, now the final scene of the novel is back at the Kingrosians and so who's all here well you know I we well we finished up with Nate, Nate and those recording the the Chubbers um, but who also at the Kingrosians of course is is now Nicole and that's the focus of the final pages but it's Nicole's going to be there Jim Plank Nat's there too so there that Molly that whole group that was hanging around the Congrosians are there and what is talked about at the end of this book at the end of the book is overall the theme of the future of humanity and the fact that all things can change and things aren't static and things aren't perpetual um, and I think one way we can read a lot of Dick's writings especially his late 50s 60s stuff is a kind of a response to this orwellian view that the future once established becomes a permanent kind of totalitarianism right a, what how does orwell put it a boot stepping on humanity for all time right dick's visions of the future are always are always liquid are always fluid and sometimes that's frustrating because we want to know where we are we want to have things we can rely on and count on but there's also a bit of optimism in the fact that things are always fluid and changing and 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 mixing up and the, and the future is unwritten and the way this is framed is is really about the question of what is nicole going to do at this point in her life and nicole makes a decision that she she actually tells nat that he should go back and help he should get into the fight uh, nat wants to sit it out and he kind of wants to be like you know 
maybe just hang out with the Chubbers or whatever, like like Grosjean had been doing for so long. But she encourages him to to set out to help uh, in the fight. And Nat replies this way: I don't even know what you're talking about. I can't make out even what's going on, what the issues are, who's fighting whom. Do you know? Maybe you can tell me, but I doubt it. He thought. I doubt if you can turn into something sensible for me or for anyone else, because it's just not sensible. Nicole said, what would it require you to get to take me back or at least out of here? Shrugging yet said nothing. All at once he made up his mind. He saw things clearly because I won't do it. I'm sorry. We're going to wait this out. This events that's going on. I don't know how Congrosia managed to put you here, but maybe he's right. Maybe this is the best place to be for you, for us, for a long time to come. He smiled. Nicole did not smile back. Damn you, Nicole said. He continued to smile. Please, she said, help me. You were going to. You started to. Speaking of huskily, Jim Plank said, Maybe he is helping you, Mrs. Thibodeau, by doing this and keeping you here. I think Nat's right, too, Molly said. I'm sure it's an unsafe place for you at the White House right now. Nicole looked around fiercely at all three of them. Then, resignedly, she sighed, What a place to be stuck. Damn that Richard Kingrosian, too. This is basically his fault. What are these creatures? He gestured at the shuffling line of adult chubbers out of the small... Out of, and the small neo-chubber children who lined both of the great dusty wooden halls. I'm not quite certain, Nat said. Relatives are, as you could say, progeny, very possibly. Forefathers, Jim Plank said, correcting him. Nat said, time will tell which it is. Lighting a cigarette, Nicole said vigorously, I don't like them. I feel a lot happier when we'll get back to the house. They make me dreadfully uncomfortable. They should, Nat said. Certainly, he shared her extreme reaction. Around the four of them, the chubbers danced their monotone dance, paying no attention to the four human beings. I think, however, Jim Plank said thoughtfully, we're going to have to get accustomed to them. And that's that's the end of the novel. So they end up deciding to stay at the Congrosians and, and, and wait for the future that that comes. A little bit of Taoism, um, a little bit of, of hopeful optimism of what the future might bring. Um, but but certainly going back to the old, restoring the old government, the old way of life, the old system is not the way out for for these characters. So there's a variety of options here. Um, like for the Chubbers, it was waiting out until their moment came. For Pembroke, it's disrupting the system. For Goltz, it was kind of bringing down the Deralta system. Kind of, they were sort of, although they, they were enemies in, in the novel, they, they were kind of working towards the same goal of disrupting the Deralta system. Um, you know, for others, it's the frontier. So there's a lot of liquidity, I think, at the end of this novel. And I, I think that's that's one thing I like about it. Um, so anyways, my, my thoughts on this. Um, I... I, I think this novel is not for everyone. It's, it's not the kind of novel for a beginner PKD reader. Um, if you're just coming to Philip K. Dick, I, I wouldn't recommend necessarily the simulacrum. I think it's a very important work um, of his. I, I mean, there's not many of his works that I wouldn't say are important to understanding him, but it's, it's, it's one of his clear visions of this idea that the political system is a lie and how we might respond to that and how that might affect our psychology. I also think it's one of his stronger images and novels on mental illness. Of course, his follow or the other novel he wrote, I don't know if it, the order these were written in, but another novel he wrote in 1964 called Clans of the Elfane Moon is more overtly about mental illness, and it's, it's in a much more politically incorrect way, I think. Um, and I, there's a reason I think a lot of people might be offended by Clans of the Elfane Moon, especially readers who come at it today. The simulacrum deals with mental illness, and I think in a way that's that's perhaps more politically correct, um, especially focusing on the psychiatrist and focusing on a couple of characters with real and r realistic mental illnesses. 
you know, like, and, and then this idea that these mental illnesses come forth from the political system they that the people live in, especially this kind of obsession with Nicole, this, this almost Oedipus complex, I think is, is well done here. I think Dick does a pretty good job of carrying all these threads together, maybe not you know, as well as he does in other novels. He's got so many moving parts here. You could almost take almost any of these subplots going on and make a whole novel out of them. And you get the sense that maybe he wanted to do that at some point, but he couldn't. So he ended up cramming some things together. Certainly the Ian Duncan Al Miller plot with the Looney Luke has has been sort of projected into the novel. And it's one reason it's ended earlier than the other storylines. Um, it actually comes right out of a short story he, he wrote in 19... Uh, published in 1964 called Novelty Act, and and it's some parts of that story are almost line for line uh, what we see in the in the simulacrum. A few things are quite different, and thematically it's a little bit different, but a lot of the same stuff are in there. So you get the sense that he's piecing together a lot of different ideas he had into one story, but it's amazing that it holds together at all, actually, the f because of the way it's it's constructed. So th there's a lot to like about the novel. I think it's really funny, um, especially the way Congrosion is dealt with, the way Ian Duncan and Chick Strike Rock are dealt with is also very humorous. The Im look at the media, the look, the way he looks at uh, advertisements is a lot of fun. And I just, again, I got to come back to this. I think this idea of, of people, men, not just people, not, not all people, but men in particular, because we only really see into the minds of men. We, we, we see Nicole, we see Mrs. Congrosion, we see a few other women, but really where we get the deep look into people's head is through the men. And they're almost all facing crises in their lives and psychological problems, whether it's, it's straight up mental illness like Congrosion and the, kind of the, this almost need to retire or whether it's kind of an aimlessness, like with Ian Duncan not really knowing what he wants out of life and, and being kind of a failure, or whether it's people who, who are losing their jobs or, you know, whatever it is, or people who just lost their wife. And then the blame for this is projected onto women often, and that, that's true with several characters. Uh, both like the Strike Rocks blame women, blame particularly Julia for for their problems but they also have nicole and nicole is this omnipresent female figure in everyone's life and she seems to be the root cause of so many people of these men's psychological problems um you know you could fit in for nicole anything like feminism or the rise of women and you have a fairly accurate depiction of how many people are responding to these phenomenon today the rise of women in, in feminism right especially you see so much on the on the alt-right and uh, I know it's a lot on the internet, but if you go into places like 4chan and places like that, you'll, you'll see this vitriol towards women, this anti-feminism, misogyny coming out of young men who, you know, are a little bit aimless. You know, maybe they don't have good jobs or they don't have partners. And to back me up, I mean, I, I, I don't I'm not really part of those communities, but, you know, I, I'm getting this from a novel uh, or not a novel a book called Kill All Normies by Angela Nagel. And she kind of dissects the alt-right, the internet community of the alt-right in these terms. And I, you know, I'm kind of throwing it out there that I think the Sons of Job movement is, is comparable in some significant ways with some of the things we're seeing now with maybe the Jordan Peterson movement or, or more broadly with the, the alt-right and, and kind of the, the feminist, you know, the anti-feminist reaction. We see particularly on the Internet, if not in, you know, culture, you know, the people on the Internet who shout about social justice warriors all the time that they're 
anyways, en- enough on that. I, I probably should just write this up into a formal little essay and, and record that as a, as a separate episode at some point because I, I, I haven't really fully developed my thoughts on it, but I think there's something there and there's some comparables there, but I'd have to actually do a little bit more research and, and think about it a bit more. So um, that that more or less does it with my thoughts on on the simulacrum. I'm, I guess normally at this point I'd go into themes, but I think there's not too much more need to to do that so i'm just going to put an end to this episode Uh, i'm almost at an hour at this point so i am going to sign off Um, thank you as always for listening if you have your own comments about any of the things i mentioned or the novel the simulacrum as a whole please leave them below i would love to hear from you next up i'll be looking at dick's uh novel also published in 1964 also dealing with mental illness, also dealing with the frontier, also dealing with marriage and a fulfilling marriage. A lot of overlap. Um, these are obviously things that were on Dick's mind in 1964. The novel is Clans of the Elfane Moon. And as I just mentioned, it's not at all politically correct. So um, it's going to be a wild ride. Um, I've When I first read it, or the first few times I read it, I didn't notice. But when I read it today, I'm just like, wow, this novel can never be published today. The way he talks about mental illness and the way he talks about marriage and family, it's just... It, but it's so much fun. It's 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 bizarre. It's weird, and it's you know everything is funny about this novel. So I'm really excited to talk about it. So that's what's going to be next. I'll I'll start. I'll probably do four or five episodes on on Clans of the Elfane Moon. So looking forward to that. Uh, so read the first few chapters of that if you're reading along with me. Um, but if not, uh, I'll uh, you know I'll still see you. I'll be back in a little bit with my first thoughts on Clans of the Elfie Moon. So thanks for listening to this series on the simulacrum. Um, please leave your thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. See you next time. You must search till you find the You will find peace and contentment for if you